The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Start! You can call me Bruce. Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce! Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Is it still okay to call it Victory Thursday? Like, are we are we allowed to do that? You know, Victory Monday, Victory Tuesday. At what point does it stop becoming Victory Week? Does it ever stop? Can I go Victory Saturday? Is it Victory Sunday because the Bills play on Monday night? Can I do that? Is that allowed? I'm going to need a ruling at some point from somebody. Do we have a definitive answer on who like is the judge of Bill's Mafia? Can we like assign that to someone? Is it me? Are you guys going to put that burden on me? Am I going to have to wear a powdered wig? I don't know. We need to figure this out. This is very important. These are the things that people need to know. But the other thing that we need to know is the Bills are eight and three. The Bills defeated the previously San Diego, now Los Angeles Chargers, 27 to 17 to improve their record to eight and three by a score of 27 to 17. And as we always do on the Thursday pod, we're going to address the narratives that have come out of this game, specifically one big one. Whenever the Bills win against an inferior opponent, but they don't necessarily win in dominating fashion the way that you would hope that they would, whether that's dominating fashion in terms of rushing yards or passing yards or whatever people want to use the word dominance to define, whether that's just point differential, whether it's win probability, people will define the word dominance as necessary to reinforce their point of view. And when the Bills don't dominate someone to their point of view, Then the question becomes, okay, can we get away with this? Can the team get away with this? This type of play, 
this passing attack, this running attack, this defense, whatever it is that sticks in our crawl that particular week, can they get away with this against better competition? Is this win predictive of wins in the future or is it not? You have heard me say before on this podcast that how and why you win are more predictive of future wins than the W itself. Winning a game isolated by itself doesn't predict future wins. The method by which you win games can predict future wins, but the win itself is just one data point and it's not really connected to the next. But there is a competing idea that has come up quite a bit for the Bills this year. Started to kind of rumble around after the Bills-Raiders game where they won and then the Raiders went and they beat the Chiefs. It kind of started to mull around a little bit when the Bills beat the Jets 18-10. to And we thought to ourselves, okay, what does this say about the team moving forward? And that's this concept. It's a week-to-week league, which seems on its surface to fly in the face of the thing I just told you. How can it's a week-to-week league coexist and operate in the same space with how and why you win are more predictive than the W itself? I would argue that the reason this podcast is titled Threading the Needle is because that's what we need to do on this show today. That's what I'm going to do. I am going to make an argument that both of these concepts, how and why you win are more predictive than the W itself, and it's a week-to-week league, can and should both coexist. They are not mutually exclusive concepts. And I really think it boils down to the way we're defining them. How do you define it's a week-to-week league? What do you mean by that? If you ask someone to elaborate on that, then you'll know if those two things can coexist. So I am going to try to define that phrase because you hear it a lot. And as we have a tendency to do on this podcast, words have meaning and we are going to dive into them. A week-to-week league is a reference to the game of football being about probabilities, not absolutes. It's possible to win a Super Bowl with a game-managing quarterback and an elite defense. It's been done. Most recently, it was done in 2000 and 2002. Elite defenses, game-managing quarterbacks, Brad Johnson, Trent Dilfer, they're the famous ones. Two of the greatest defenses of all time. And two quarterbacks who you would never consider to be franchise players. So we know it can happen. It's possible, but it's not probable. If something has a 90% chance of happening, we'd say that's highly probable. But that also means it has a 10% chance of not happening. A week-to-week league, that phrase, is an acceptance of football being a game of probabilities and not absolutes. It's not a shrug and a statement that, well, nothing from one game is correlated to another and anything can happen. That's not what week-to-week league is or should mean. If someone says to you, it's a week-to-week league, and they mean it, as in, it's all just random, and we're all nihilistic, just balls of atoms in the universe, and nothing really matters, that's not what that phrase should mean. 
It's a week-to-week league is a recognition that even though probabilities matter, improbable things still happen all the time. That's why they're called improbable and not impossible. If there was no chance of a bad team beating a good team ever in football, then we would call it impossible, but we don't. We call it improbable. And the reason this gets messed up with football specifically is because any given Sunday is not the same as any given game for baseball or basketball. Because a smaller sample size for football means that each game and each season is more prone to improbabilities having a significant effect. The best team in baseball wins the World Series more often than the best team in football wins the Super Bowl. Why? Because the sample size is larger. There are more games leading up to the playoffs. In the playoffs, there's seven-game series. There is a higher likelihood that the best team in baseball wins the World Series than there is the best team in football wins the Super Bowl. That's one of the reasons why football is more popular. Because it's not a foregone conclusion. There's enough improbability built in to keep it exciting. That's where the phrase any given Sunday comes from. That there is improbability built into the game. And improbable things happen all the time. That is what week-to-week league means. It's a week-to-week league. We recognize that even the probable things aren't necessarily guarantees. That's what that means. Well, a win is a win. Okay. Not necessarily. Regular season and playoffs are not two separate seasons. Playing well in the regular season is historically correlative to playing well in the postseason. Obviously, there are exceptions to this rule. We bring up the Ravens. We bring up the Peyton Manning Colts early in his career for choking early on in the playoffs. But very, very few wildcard teams have won a Super Bowl. There's a reason for that. The vast majority of teams that get to the AFC and AFC championship games were not wildcard teams. There's a reason for that. Regular season success is correlative to playoff success. It's not like they're two separate, distinct, unique things and nothing correlates between the two of them. There's no correlation between success in the regular season and success in the playoffs. That's not true. There's lots of correlation. So we're defining terms now. We're defining week-to-week league. We're defining a win as a win. Now we're going to define how you play. When I say how you play, how and why you win are more predictive than just the W itself, I'm not referring just to point differential. People think I'm referring to point differential. The Chiefs were up 20 to 7 and won by 3. They went to overtime against the Chargers and lost to the Raiders. That does not mean it's a week to week league and you just shrug when you get a W and shrug when you get an L. Oh well, week to week league. If that's the case, why do we even bother practicing between the games? If it's all just random, what's the point? When I say how you play matters, how and why you win matter. Point differential is a very small part of that. You can simultaneously understand that 50% of the games in the NFL are close and also recognize the following things. 
throwing the ball effectively, defending the pass, and getting good coaching are correlative to winning on a larger scale. This has been proven time and time again. I did an entire podcast series on football myths this previous offseason. And one of the myths was running the ball and stopping the run is the key to winning. It's not true. Passing the ball and stopping the pass is key to winning. So if you pass the ball well, you stop the pass, and you get good coaching, that is more correlative to long-term success. The Dolphins were winning under Tua with special teams and defensive touchdowns. That's what I mean. The fact that the Dolphins on the scoreboard beat the snot out of the Rams is not relevant to me. Because I know qualitatively how they won. And I know that's not sustainable. And sure enough, they lost to the Broncos. Because you can't count on defensive and special teams touchdowns. So when you get that win, if you're a Dolphins fan, you don't just shrug in the air and go, hey, you know what? W's a W, doesn't matter. No. You recognize that the things that you had go right in that game are probably not going to go right moving forward. It's not always going to land like that. I use this example all the time. If you have a quarterback who is getting sacked and chucks the ball up into triple coverage and a receiver comes down with it, you don't go over and pat the quarterback on the head and tell him great play. That was a terrible play. Whether or not something worked is not the defining factor of whether or not it was a good play or a good move or a good game or a good decision or a good life judgment. Just judging things based on outcome as positive or outcome as negative will get you nowhere. That's why we discuss the games after wins and after losses. That's why even though the Bills lost to the Kansas City Chiefs, I came on this podcast and defended the game plan that the Bills had on defense. You all remember that. I defended it. Because just because the Bills lost doesn't mean it wasn't a good idea to do. And just because the Bills win a game doesn't necessarily mean that everything happened that inside that game was good. Or the game plan was good. Or Josh Allen was great. Because wins are the quarterback stat. So how you win matters. And... It's a week-to-week league. Both of them are true. How you win matters because there's certain qualities of a win that are predictive of future wins and certain qualities of a win that are unsustainable. That matters. In addition, it's a week-to-week league. And we recognize that improbable things happen. But that's not What we mean when we use week-to-week league to throw our hands up in the air and go, well, it doesn't matter. No, that's not what that means. You can't just say, well, it's a week-to-week league. Anything can happen. When you lose to a bad team in a bad fashion and you can't pass the ball and you can't stop the pass and your coach makes a ton of mistakes, you don't just throw your hands up in the air and go, oh, it's a week-to-week league, doesn't matter. And when you win a game, and you struggle with those same things, you don't have a different reaction just because the scoreboard looked different at the end. Whether you won or lost should not change your opinion of the qualitative factors that went into that game. If you couldn't pass, you couldn't stop the pass, and you got bad coaching decisions, that's bad, regardless of whether you won or lost the game. I'm not saying winning and losing doesn't matter. That's great. Obviously, I would prefer to have all those things go badly and win as opposed to have all those things go badly and lose. But if you're looking at predictively, 
Both of those things tell you the exact same thing moving forward. The W and the L doesn't tell you anything moving forward. The qualities of the W and the qualities of the L tell you things moving forward. And so both of those concepts can coexist. How and why you win matters. And it's a week-to-week league. Not or, and. Both of them matter. Any given Sunday is a real thing. It's a week-to-week league is a real thing. And how and why you win is a real thing. All three of those things matter. All three of them could coexist. All of those statements are correct as long as we know how to define them. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to dive into some of this film from the Bills Chargers. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. We talked about the fact that the Bills can have a game that falls under the how and why you win are more important than the W itself as far as prediction goes, and it's a week-to-week league. All that stuff can coexist. There's nothing exclusionary about it. And now we are going to jump into my thoughts on this game in particular. I made a comment on Twitter that I wasn't a big fan of the offensive play calling in this game, specifically running out of neutral scripts. The Bills called a run play 14 times on either first and 10 or second and long. Running the ball was effective overall against the Chargers. But consistently running the ball out of those game scripts and having it work is not a common occurrence. That's not something that you can count on. And it's not something that was even as effective in this game as passing. Well, Bruce, the Chargers had a bad run defense. That's why we did it. I understand that. But even with Josh Allen playing, eh, not very great. It was okay. It was whatever. With Josh Allen playing me on Sunday... And with the Chargers' terrible run defense, the Bills still averaged markedly more yards per play passing out of first and 10 and second and long than they did running out of first and 10 and second and long. I am never going to be in favor of running heavily out of neutral game scripts because even on a day where the Bills' passing attack was not super efficient, they still gain more yards throwing from first and 10 and second and long than running from those times. The Bills averaged 4.8 yards per carry running from first and 10 and second and long. That's awesome. On passes in the same situation, they averaged 9.2 net yards per pass attempt, including the biggest plays of the game happened on first and 10, second and long, passing the ball down the field. Even against a lousy first down run defense that the Chargers have, passing early was still more effective. So I think we should have done it more. Now, very important note. I am counting the pass interference on the pass attempt to Diggs. If we don't count that, the Bills still average 7.29 net yards per pass attempt on first and 10 and second and long. Still almost double 
the running game was effective. But unless there is a particular unique circumstance that necessitates running the ball as often as the Bills did against, for example, the Patriots, crazy win conditions and seven defensive backs and six defensive backs all the time. Okay, sure. In that case, let's do it. I am never going to defend a game plan that is heavy, heavy runs on first and 10 and second and long unless there are particularly extreme mitigating circumstances like weather or crazy personnel usage like the Patriots did. Because even when your passing game is less efficient, it's still better than the running game. Well, Bruce, it worked. We've already talked about this. We've already talked about the fact that it, the fact that it got the W. So if the Bills defense doesn't rise up after three Buffalo Bills turnovers in seven plays and the Chargers score and they win, are you now thinking the same thing? Are you still now thinking it was an awesome idea? Because if not, you're being tainted by the W and the L. Whether or not something is a good game plan or a bad game plan is not determined by whether or not the W or the L happened. Well, Bruce, you scored 27 points. Looked good running and playing defense. Okay, so 27 points is 12th in the league in scoring, so average. It's a, okay. And it's also below the Bills' season average. So it's lower than normal for the Bills. And it's lower than normal against the Chargers' defense. So the Chargers defense, from a scoring standpoint, did better than normal against the Bills. And the Bills offense did worse than it normally does. So how effective was it if the Bills scored below their season average and the Chargers let up less than their season average? It worked, Bruce. You know what worked for the Patriots? Drafting a quarterback in the sixth round. Maybe we should all do it. You know, because it worked, stuff like that. I mean, if it worked, let's let's do it, right? I chuck the ball up to double coverage. My receiver catches it. Sure, let's do it every play. Well, why don't why do what do you mean I shouldn't do it every play? Because it's improbable. All right. It's because we know intrinsically that there's improbabilities built in. We know it's not going to work every time. It's the same thing with running on first and 10 and second and long very, very heavily. It's not going to work every time. It worked this time, but I would make an argument the Bills probably would have scored more points if they would have passed. I know they would have gotten more yards because they did get more yards. So, I was not a huge fan of it. I have defended game plans in the past. I have had game plans I haven't loved. I am always going to be intellectually honest with you and give you my opinion and tell you why I have that opinion. Because if I just sit here and rubber stamp every single thing the team does, what's the point? If I just sit here and whine and cry and say everything's horrible all the time with the Bills, then what's the point? If all I'm going to do is bring constant negativity or constant cheerleading, what's the point? Why even bother to do this? Why think critically about any of this? I recognize that I'm in the minority here. That was pretty clear from the discussion that generated on social media. I'm in the minority here, and that's okay. 
I completely understand why someone would say, hey, Chargers had a bad run defense. We want to come off the bye. We want to establish the run game. Make sure that we could. We want to put it on film for future. I get that. I can see that perspective. It doesn't hold as much weight for me as the perspective I've already shared with you. But it doesn't have to be all or nothing. It Just because I think that my opinion has a higher probability of being accurate doesn't mean that your opinion is garbage. Because it's not. I think it's a completely reasonable opinion. I think differently. But when you deal in probabilities like this, it's not my opinion's right, therefore you're garbage. Like, that's not how this works. I, I can see that point of view. I think differently, but I can see that point of view. I'll tell you one thing we need to be talking about. Special teams coaching. I know, right? So, all game long, Tyler Bass was kicking it short and covering, and it worked great. The special teams coaching was on point. The Bills knew the Chargers had a bad special teams unit, and they wanted to make them run as many plays as humanly possible. They didn't want to let them off the hook. Make them cover, make them return. The second the Bills got a penalty and they had to re-kick, then they kicked it out of the end zone. This was a really, really nice touch, and I made sure I made a note about it because I wanted to talk about it. The Bills kick it short. It gets returned. There's an offsides penalty. They have to re-kick. People will tell you, especially special teams coaches and former special teams players, will tell you that a lot of big returns happen on re-kicks. A lot of big returns and big plays happen on re-kicks. So the Bills weren't going to give them an opportunity. So the second time they went to kick, it went out the back of the end zone. That is a nice touch. That's good coaching. It's good decision-making. It's good risk management, and it needed to be pointed out. With three minutes left to go, up by 10, the Bills were still bringing pressure. I don't know how often I have to bang the drum that Sean McDermott is not an overly conservative coach, but I am going to die on this hill. There's another example of Sean McDermott not being an overly conservative coach. Three minutes to go, up by 10, they're bringing pressure. He's not conservative. This is the coaching part of the pod. Now let's talk about some players. Andre Roberts, you can't see me, but I'm sipping tea. Did an entire pod on Andre Roberts, why they should keep him, and what the value was for a kick returner in starting field position. I made the argument that there's opportunity cost associated with good kick and punt return units. Ask the Chargers how they feel about it. Ask them how they feel about having terrible special teams units. See if they think it's a real thing. Josh Allen. As I mentioned earlier, it was a me day. He had very little impact, positively or negatively, on the game. There was two significant downfield throws, one of which was Gabriel Davis, not Josh Allen. Gabriel Davis went up and mossed a guy. Awesome for him. The other was a pass interference call. Those are the two significant plays down the field. Aside from that, it was six-yard passes to Stephon Diggs here and there. It was it was fine. It was eh. I don't think it really tells us anything. The interception, his hand was thrown. He probably shouldn't have shown it, thrown it anyway, to be honest. Probably shouldn't have thrown that ball. 
Stephon Diggs was bracketed, man over top, man underneath. It may have been picked anyway. I don't know. But it's hard to tell. We know it wasn't a great decision. But it's hard to tell where that ball would have gone if his arm hadn't been hit. He did try and pick up a fumble that he fumbled when he dropped the snap. You're going to get that with Josh Allen. We've talked a lot about traits and flaws on this pod. The difference between a trait and a flaw. Josh Allen being a gamer and being crazy competitive is a trait. The upside is the swag that you see from Josh Allen when he runs the ball in and spins it. And his coach says, love that swagger, damn it. That's what the coach says. The downside is he's going to try and pick up that fumble. That's just who he is. I'm not really going to knock him for it, to be honest. Because I recognize it as being one side of that coin. It's one side of the aggressiveness coin. It's one side of the gamer coin. It's one side of the swag coin. Whatever trait you want to use to describe that, that's an aspect of it. And you can't ask someone to always have all of the good with that and never have any of the bad. It's just a trait, and that's an aspect and a manifestation of the trait. So Tremaine Edmonds does not suck at football, despite what people told me. He was hurt. That was causing hesitation. That was messing up his angles. It's messing up his tackling. He looks like he's back. I'm thrilled for it, personally. Tremaine Edmonds playing well is a big part of this team doing well moving forward. This is a linebacker-centric defense. As the linebackers go, so too does the defense. Tredavious White absolutely loves the Bills calling cover three, (laughs) especially when there's nobody on his side and he can pick a route. That's the second time he's done it. Did it against the Seahawks, did it against the Chargers. Teams are going to start noticing this. That's instincts. That's part of playing zone corner. It's one of the reasons why Tredavious White is historically looked at as being a good man-to-man corner and a great zone corner. He has instincts. He understands route combinations. From the neck up, he's one of the best corners in football. A.J. Klein had himself a day, ladies and gentlemen. When you have a linebacker who has had previous bliss success, it lets you do things like on the first play of the game. The Bills had a five-man zone pressure. Klein was on the end of the defensive line. He drops out, and then Edmonds comes. Forrest Lamp, the left guard for the Chargers, he saw Klein, told the center, the prediction shifted that direction left for the offense, and then Edmonds was able to get home. Because A.J. Klein was able to line up on the edge. The Chargers said, you know, A.J. Klein really likes to blitz. Let's make sure we have three-on-three to the left. They shifted that direction. Now it's three-on-two on the left side of the offensive line and two-on-three on the right side of the offensive line. And that's how Tremaine Edmonds is able to get home. That's the benefit of zone pressures. And when you have a linebacker who has blitz success and it shows up on film, you can get away doing things like that. The Bills' defense is starting to make changes up front late into the snap count to help with the blitz game. 
they're starting to do to teams what Arizona did to them, which was part of the discussion we had last week before the Chargers game when it came to crumbling their cookies. I talked about do to them what the Cardinals did to us. And that's what they did. I did the Leonardo DiCaprio meme where I pointed at the screen and go, hey, hey, that's the zone pressures we're talking about. I would look in the future for opposing offenses to run hurry up with quick snaps to counter that stuff. That's the way you get the Bills out of their disguises and out of their movement. Come up to the line, snap it quick. Don't give the Bills a chance to creep AJ Klein up, have you change the protection, then have him drop out and Tremaine Edmonds come or vice versa. Don't give them a chance to show you two and then get really far into their next position before you snap the ball because you've got people in motion. Make them rush to their spots. That's what offenses should do against the Bills. They should make the Bills rush to their landmarks because they're going to be out of position. So look for that moving forward. AJ Klein did a lot of things for us. Blitzing, man coverage with Green Dog on running back. Green Dog is when you have man coverage, but it's a, it's a sub call. When your man stays in a block, you go. In addition, you'll notice AJ Klein, when he's blitzing, he's blitzing through the running back. And what I mean by that is not he's just running directly at the running back, although sometimes he is. But he's blitzing, but his eyes are on the running back while he's moving. Watch his eyes. I made a note of this when I was watching AJ Klein film yesterday evening. I said, as he's running toward the line of scrimmage, his eyes are on the running back. He's blitzing through the running back. He's playing middle hook zone. He's playing flat curl and a cover three cut look. They asked him to do linebacker things. I mentioned after the Seattle game that I didn't think AJ Klein was markedly better at doing linebacker things than he previously had been. He just had a chance to run in a straight line unblocked a couple times. That was not the case this game. AJ Klein was good doing linebacker things, running sideline to sideline, delaying superior athlete Austin Eckler on the edge so his teammates can get there. Showing a really good feel for seam routes that are happening behind him in zone coverage. It was a really good game from AJ Klein. It was not fool's gold. It was really good. AJ Epinesa was another topic for this game. And here are some of the things I took away from my viewing of AJ Epinesa. When you have a player who lacks elite athleticism for the position, which A.J. Epinesa does. If you recall, he had a really bad combine. And there were questions about his athleticism before the combine. Bills picked him in the second round. If you have a player like A.J. Epinesa, he will succeed or fail with his hand and arm usage. That's what you should be looking at from A.J. Epinesa to tell you whether or not he has a chance to be successful at this level. Because you know he's not going to make his living bending the edge against NFL offensive tackles. He's not Brian Burns. That's not how he's going to win. So if you know the method required for A.J. Epinesa to be successful in this league, that's what you should be looking for when you watch him. Hand usage. Looks pretty good. 
Got a nice cross chop move. He was clearing contact. Had a really good long arm. These are the things that you want to see from AJ Epinesa. Bull rush, long arm, cross chop. Can he clear contact with his hands? Or does he get stuck on blocks? Is he utilizing his length properly? Or is he letting offensive tackles get into his chest? That's what you should be looking at. That's how you evaluate a player like AJ Epinesa. Because you know you're not going to be looking for crazy bend. That's not who he is. That's not what he has. Those aren't the tools he has at his disposal. So you don't go looking for a wrench when you know your dude has a screwdriver. The question is, can he use the screwdriver? Not, does he have a wrench? We already know he doesn't have a wrench. He has a screwdriver. The question is, is he good at it? And the answer is, there are some encouraging signs. If you are a player, and as a pass rusher, who can only win with your feet, you have a pretty low ceiling. There was a player who could only win with his feet. It was Aaron Mabin. The only thing you can do is run in circles around somebody. That's it. That's all you can do. That's fairly low ceiling. You're probably going to get figured out. What if you can win with your hands? That's better. That's better. There's been lots of very effective players in the NFL who didn't have elite foot speed, but could win and have long, meaningful careers with hand usage and compression rush and proper technique. One of them is on the Bills right now, and it's Mario Addison. If A.J. Epinesa turns in a Mario Addison career, you should be very happy with that. Mario Addison's had a good career. If you can win with just your feet, pretty low ceiling. If you can win with just your hands, that's better. If you can win with both, that's ideal. That's where you get people like Joey Bosa and Nick Bosa and Miles Garrett. Because the more things you can do, the more opportunity you have to win. Because the offensive tackle has to account for a litany of different possibilities instead of just one. You have to have tools. You have to have arrows in your quiver as a pass rusher. You can't just do one thing. If the only way you can win is running around the outside of a tackle, you're probably not going to be super effective. Now, you might add to that a a swim move or an inside spin. Some like Dwight Free made an entire career out of speed and then inside spin. Speed, inside spin. But hand use is just part of an inside spin move. Making sure that your shoulder's correct. Making sure that you're ending your spin at the correct spot where your shoulder's past his. Otherwise, you're just spinning in place. You look like a ballerina. That really doesn't help you pass rush. Ballerinas not known for their pass rush. So when you're looking at AJ Epinesa, that's what you should be looking at. You know what he is. He's a long-armed, heavy-handed pass rusher. What you should be looking for is how well is he doing the things we know he needs to do to be successful. And the answer after the Chargers game is not bad. Not bad at all. He hasn't arrived yet. I mean, you'll see an occasion if you go back and watch it where he struggled to disengage from Hunter Henry. He hasn't arrived by any means, but he should continue to get snaps on this defensive line. He is not a liability. I, I saw one play where the uh, the tight end motioned in and A.J. Epinesa slid over to the outside one gap, which is the exact same mistake he made earlier this year 
when Dean Marlowe had to come up and tap him on the rear end and go, you're in the wrong spot, you need to move over. This time, the same thing happened and he moved over on his own accord. It's a fun little strange ditty that wouldn't probably stick out to a lot of people. But it stuck out to me because we talked about it earlier in the year. And it's a recognition of the mental side starting to come around for AG Epinesa. It's time for plurality pie, baby. A big old slice of plurality pie. For the uninitiated, plurality pie is when I go through and I assign credit or blame to players or coaches individually for the Bills' win or loss. And for this plurality pie that coming hot and fresh out the kitchen, Devin Singletary, 12%. Zach Moss, 16%. Both of them averaged a really good yards per carry. Both of them were patient with their runs. Both of them showed good vision, broke off a couple big runs. Zach Moss should absolutely have not gotten flagged. That was a ridiculous, unsportsmanlike conduct penalty. We're not going to go into it. Jerry Hughes, 9%. Jerry Hughes is a really good football player. A really good football player. I understand he only has four and a half sacks on the year. He'll probably end with seven or seven and a half. Jerry Hughes is a good football player. A.J. Klein gets 17%. That's right, 17% for A.J. Klein. He played really well, ladies and gentlemen. Like AFC Defensive Player of the Week level well. Like if he plays this well every week, he's one of the best linebackers in the league. Now, he's not going to, right? He wasn't as bad as he showed up on film the first couple of weeks, and he's not as good as he's been the last couple of weeks. He's somewhere in the middle. Tremaine Evans, 15%. Overshadowed and outshined by A.J. Klein. That's a little weird. But Tremaine Evans played really, really well. Tredavious White, 8%. Just doing Tredavious White things. He has been the quietest player on this team who just signed a contract to make him the highest paid player in his position in the league, although it only lasted for a couple days. It's almost like we all forgot about how good he was. Tredavious White's living up to the contract. He's a very, very, very good player. Tyler Bass, 6%. Maybe kickers do develop. Maybe we shouldn't cut him after a couple games. Maybe Tyler Bass is getting it. The fact that the Bills are comfortable with Tyler Bass and the fact that Tyler Bass's field goals and extra points are starting to kind of gravitate toward the center of the uprights. If you will recall, Joe Marino, Locked On Bills Draft Network, had former Buffalo Bills kicker Jake Arians on his podcast. He said, you can always really tell when a kicker's starting to feel it, when he's comfortable, because the ball has a tendency to kind of end up in the center. And that's where we're at with Tyler Bass. Looking like a good pick. Looking like he's coming around. Other 17%. So 12% Devin Singletary, 16% Zach Moss, 9% Jerry Hughes, 17% AJ Klein, 15% Tremaine Edmonds, 8% Tredavious White, 6% Tyler Bass, other 17%. Where's Josh Allen? Josh Allen didn't have a very significant part to play in this game. He just kept everything on schedule, turned the ball over a couple times when he probably shouldn't. But as I mentioned earlier, I'm hard-pressed to really be super hard on him about those two turnovers. 
One of them might have been a terrible decision, but we don't really know where the ball was going to go. The other one, you know, I get it. He's a competitor. That's what he does. But it was a, he didn't have a significant impact on the game more than the other people I mentioned. It was okay for Josh Allen. And the fact of the matter is the Bills being able to win games multiple ways matters. Good teams win games all sorts of ways. They win close games. They win blowouts. They come from behind. They hold on to a lead. Good teams win games all sorts of ways when it comes to the storyline of the game. Eight and three, on to Monday night against the 49ers. And that's the way the crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumble.